Dave here. I'm super excited about this episode for all sorts of reasons. This one sort of fell into our laps thanks to this amazing sequence of events that all started about three years ago. On October 4th, 2012, I got an email in my inbox from Richard Renner. I had a vague sense of who Richard was because I'd heard of the busking festival that he runs in Lawrence, Kansas. In his email, Richard offered to help us put together a grant application for the Awesome Foundation, which he did, and for a while it fell off my radar. Seven months to the day after getting Richard's first email, I got another message in my inbox, this time from Jennifer Raymond of the Awesome Foundation, with the news that the Busker Hall of Fame had been awarded a grant for $1,000. This was really pivotal at the time because the project was operating at a pretty sizable deficit, and this grant really helped us put a dent in the money we owed. About a year and a half later, I got another email from Jennifer with an introduction to Brian Noons from World Tree Films. Brian had directed and edited a documentary on several of the street musicians who play at Pike's Place Market in Seattle called Find Your Way. Brian then connected us with Chris Ballou, lead singer of the Presidents of the United States of America and his current project, Casper Baby Pants. Why? Well, as it happens, beyond just being in the documentary, Chris got his start as a busker on the streets of Boston. So, three years in the making, let's get to it. Welcome to Stories from the Pitch, a podcast dedicated to creating a living oral history of street performing and some of the crazy characters who populate this world. In a world. (laughs) How was that? That was perfect. This is the Stories from the Pitch podcast, and I'm David Aiken, the checkerboard guy, your host for this growing collection of interviews. This episode represents a bit of a departure for the podcast. To date, we focused on the stories and histories of circle show performers, the type of street act that follows the gather a crowd, give them a show, and pass the hat sort of formula. Musician Chris Ballou seemed to approach the street with a much different focus. He gravitated to the street because of the freedom it offered and for the immediacy of being able to create music, play it live, and connect with an audience without having to ask anyone for permission to do so. If you were listening to music in the 90s, you're no doubt familiar with the whimsical pop songs of Chris's band, the Presidents of the United States of America, and the success they enjoyed. Going from playing clubs to playing stadiums certainly seems like many people's version of success. But does that version of success actually limit your freedom and change your motivation? Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh connected with Chris to discuss all of this, and here again there's a departure from the norm for this podcast. It's not an interview filled with, I got to do this and I got to do that, It's more a conversation of, when I got to this point, I realized this, and I felt like that. It's a discussion that revolves mostly around Chris's journey as an artist and his approach to personal happiness. Two things that I think we can all learn from as we create our own stories from the pitch. This microphone, I've got it all set up and it's exciting, but man, is it sensitive. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's picking up everything. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's... A learning thing. I got the pop guard, so I'm excited. I feel like a legitimate, I mean, even though it's hanging from very long shoestrings from my ceiling, but it's... (laughs) (laughs) It's more like your first band rehearsal when you're 13. That's how I used to, with no mic stands, we would like duct tape the mic from the ceiling, you know. (laughs) I did get the duct tape out. I just didn't use it on this one. The shoelaces worked fine. Yeah, yeah. The duct tape was ready to go, yeah. Tell me about your. You tell me about that. What your first studio looks like? Well, my my first studio was just a handheld recorder, basically, and then my mom had a cassette recorder also, and so like a boombox, and so I would put the two boomboxes next to each other and play one tape while 
playing something in the room and adding it to the other tape and then, you know, back and forth until it just sounded like a swirly mess. <laughs> so I call that the sound on sound phase. And I have a, I don't know, hundreds of recordings of very embarrassing songs uh, recorded that way, both quality wise and content wise. Oh, that's awesome. Do you still have them? Oh, yeah. I just actually put them on CD and put them in the car to listen to as I drive around just to see if there's little nuggets of potential future Casper Baby Pants songs hiding oh, cool. in there somewhere. Sometimes, you know, there's a good chord progression with horrible words or an interesting title and the song is bad. So I kind of <laughs> mine my own failures for uh, Little Diamonds in the Rough. Oh, that's cool. And it keeps you humble, too, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's interesting how youth comes with that passion that this earnestness that just you can't keep it back and there's so much drive but it's not necessarily good yet but it's that drive that's important i think at that age oh yeah just to do it i just logged i logged the ten thousand hours that everybody talks about you know that malcolm gladwell yeah. talked about and macklemore made famous uh, I did that for sure. And yeah, like, you know, there's some diamonds in the rough in there, but for the most part, it's just earnest, energetic junk. <laughs> <laughs> it's like me wishing I was in the Thompson Twins or something. <laughs> <laughs> or actually, more accurately, wishing I was in Wall of Voodoo. Wall of Voodoo was like my dream. Wall of Voodoo and Owingo Boingo were my dream bands back in the day. That was kind of where your heart was at. That's the music that you had to, to make. Yeah, it's where my 80s heart was at, yeah. <laughs> How long did it take before you felt like you stopped aspiring to be like somebody else and kind of found your own voice? Hmm, that's interesting. There was a moment there when I first got my four-track, finally convinced my mom to buy me a four-track so I could stop doing the tape bouncy-bouncy thing, and I recorded two or three songs right out of the gate that sounded totally different. They had acoustic guitar and they were kind of, um, I don't know, kind of dark and poppy. And I immediately thought, oh, that's new. That's not something else. That's just me. It's still not good, but it was, ju it was <laughs> just me. Yeah, then I started really kind of digging around trying to, you know, figure out what my... Actually, you know what? At that point, I wasn't really digging around trying to figure out anything. I was just making noise, just making songs... I was doing everything from ambient music to pop songs, electronic music, acoustic, all over the map. I've always been kind of all over the map. I always do whatever it serves the song. I always feel like the song is king or queen, and then you <clears throat> assemble the sounds and the atmosphere that supports the story of the song. And that could be a synthesizer, could be an acoustic guitar, could be a, a piano or just voice or, you know, I never know. So it's kind of fun that way because I'm not a country and Western musician, right, who has to have the same palette every time. I kind of like to really dramatically shift the palettes when I can, when it serves the song, and keep the, uh, I don't know, keep the variety show going. <laughs> well, it sounds like that gives yourself permission that you don't have to meet up with even your own expectations of something. That's probably really smart. Yeah, it makes everything new every time. You know, I have my core K 
cast of guitars that I love to use. And so there's, you know, consistency, to, especially with the Casper Baby Pants thing I'm doing with for kids. I want to make the sound palette a little more consistent because I want you to be able to make a mixtape out of all your favorite songs from all the albums, and it sounds like an album. So I don't treat every album differently, and I don't have different instruments. But that's a certain palette. And then there's this other, like I scored a video game a couple of years ago, and that had a whole other palette that was way weirder and spookier and totally different. So it's fun to just pull up a different color wheel for every project. Hmm. And you're keeping yeah. yourself busy then. It sounds like you've got a lot of different different things on the plate. Well, I'm not doing the... I, I was busy there for a while, and I've kind of come around to understanding the value of slowing down and giving myself time to be still and to do nothing and to just be a human being instead <laughs> of a human doing all the time. <laughs> So I quit. I consciously made an announcement to all my collaborators. I'm quitting doing commercial music. I'm not scoring video games, doing commercials, doing PSAs for recycling and and uh, songs about the new groundhog exhibit at the zoo or whatever. And I'm just going to make music when the muse strikes me or when I get inspired. And when I'm not, I'm going to try to not do anything. In fact, this summer, I'm taking the entire summer off, with the exception of a couple of gigs here and there. I'm going to go back to being 23 and just have pointless days. Nice. Yeah. It's going to be really good. <laughs> so I am actively trying to be less busy. Oh, that's really good. That's kind of ugh, one of those things I think as a culture we're dealing with so much. Yeah. That's the typical answer. How you doing? I'm so busy. Yeah. And uh, I don't know. I just... You know, I do meditation and Qigong, which is kind of a practice where I I lose contact with my ego and my body and just become like a little entity that floats in space. And um, I like that. It's really fun. And it kind of makes everything else seem kind of silly. It kind of makes it feel like, well, not to get too uh, dark or maudlin, but both of my parents passed away in the last couple of years. And uh, I don't know, it made me aware of something that I think occurs when you die which is the moments i think the moments before you die or the hours or days before you die all the ambition and possessions and status fall away and you are confronted with just you not even your body because your body is falling apart but just your essence and i think when i meditate and do qigong i'm kind of getting to the spot where I'm on my deathbed, <laughs> not in a sense where I'm feeling sick or weak, but just where I'm feeling free, free of all the associations and all the sort of shackles of ambition. Hmm. And uh, yeah, as uh, Spider John said in his great cover of Acres of Clams, and now I'm free from ambition. Uh, okay, never mind that. I couldn't remember. <laughs> That's all I can remember. <laughs> acres and acres of clams. Um, but, you know, the upshot of getting to that spot is you feel really good and silly and light. And it's not a heavy thing at all. It's a very light thing. So I'm just trying to let that state, I don't know, I'm trying to let that be the driver's seat mode. You know, does what I'm doing make me feel really relaxed and good and free? Yeah, that's yeah great. That's great. It's a, <laughs> a lifetime to focus on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm glad it's I figured a, it out while I'm the age I am instead of on my deathbed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about that, it kind of struck me, especially because we're, 
you know, here to talk about busking, how, yes. how that ties in, in that sense of having to confront your ego and let it fall away and only do not what you think you're supposed to do or not do it because you think you're going to try to get discovered and you have to just let all of those things go in order mm -hmm. to find that happy place and to make people want to stop and watch you on the street. Yeah. And since you have that experience, I mean, what do you think? Does that a, is that a, an e interesting oh, yeah, analogy? Totally. Yeah, it totally ties in. I mean, busking for me was the obvious choice where you didn't have to wait around for the permission of some big uh, system to tell you, all right, you're successful. It's okay. Go forward. Play for people now. Meaning like you didn't have to wait even for a club to book you or um, a crowd to show up. If you play in the subway or on the street where there's a crowd walking by, you don't have to book it. You have a crowd. You just have to get their attention, but you have a crowd. <laughs> Sometimes if you set up strategically, you have a captive audience, which is genius, like waiting for an elevator or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> you have to listen to me. <laughs> you have to. The elevator's not here, and I cut the cables. <laughs> um That'd actually be a good gag. Put up a fake elevator door and then see how many people you could get. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it, it, that, sense, uh, that sense of freedom from the sort of chains that sh shackle you to a system of uh, acceptance and ambition and the well-beaten, well-trod path of traditional ideas of success and making it. I'm making air quotes as I say making it. <laughs> All that falls away when you just take your guitar down into the subway or on the street and play for people. You're done. My overwhelming sensation when I was doing it was, oh, this is it. I'm done. I could do this for the rest of my life. I'm totally successful. Hmm. I made a song. I recorded it. I took my guitar down to the subway. I got my little cassettes here, and people are buying them, and i am got a crowd. And, yeah, I felt really good. <clears throat> it was only later that, you know, I didn't really set out to be a famous guy at all. I just really wanted to, I don't know, I just wanted to feel connected to people through music, through songs and making people laugh and making people drop their guard and have fun. And it turned out that that was the right recipe for the post-grunge Seattle scene. And we were an antidote of sorts or term such. And uh, that sort of made us in the right place at the right time. So, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't my intention. I was not in a careerist kind of mode when all that stuff happened i was just kind of riding the wave yeah so yeah well so in a, in a sense cool. i feel like i never stopped being a busker like um <laughs> i'm still a busker i just happen to have i mean actually the, when i do the casper baby pants thing i really feel like a busker because i bring my own setup my own little pa it's totally self-contained i need one outlet and I can entertain hundreds of kids. And I set up in weird places like school cafeterias and library meeting rooms and outside in parks. And so I'm not playing the traditional. I tell people that book me, I do not want a stage. I don't want lights. I don't want anything like that. I just want to be on the ground with the people. Mm -hmm. And so I'm kind of customizing that environment to be more like busking, actually, which feels super good. Mm. There is a distinct difference when someone puts you on a stage and they ask you to do your show, which you've built to have that connection with people. Just that, even if it's only a foot off the ground. Yeah. Yeah, it it's interesting. It's the dynamic, yeah. It does change the dynamic. I mean, it depends on what you do up when you're up there, too. But it is sort of a built-in suggestion that the performer is elevated both physically and sort of... Uh, 
I don't know, culturally or in skills, that this person is super special and is elevated up here and you have to have an uh, element of, there's an element of worship, I guess, kind of like, and some bands push that, you know, like Led Zeppelin, you know, they're like gods and you worship them. And uh, that's, but they do it with a, you know, they did it rather with a sort of like, wow, we're all riding this energetic wave together. It's insane. And we're the gods and you're the followers and all right. (laughs) And then there's like Oasis, who I unfortunately saw in the 90s, and they just are like a love suck. They get up on stage and like, all right, we're awesome. You're not. Give us all your energy. We'll just take it. Oh, wow. And we won't give it back. And I guess the president's for me, we're always the opposite. We're just like, give, 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 give. Actually, too, the president's, my concern with that whole environment was that uh, we're all in it together. We're all here to make something happen together. And it won't work with just us doing it. And it won't work with just you doing it. We need to kind of like collaborate on making something explode. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that got across, I hope. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, as a kid growing up and you were definitely on my boombox. I mean, that was what we were listening to in high school. Definitely. That was the energy of it. And that's probably why it was so contagious because it was, it was an energy that, that went into the room and into you and it invited you to play. Yeah. It's an invitation. Exactly. I think of it as like a curled finger, like, come on in. And some performers (laughs) are just like palm out talk to the hand you know yeah but you know that's every to each his own people have that energy and that's cool for them or that's where they're at at that time so you know it's not a criticism really it's just an observation like there's a fork in the road you can kind of choose when you're coming up as a singer or songwriter or musician you can kind of choose you know which path am i going to go you know inclusion or separation competition or compassion um all those kind of dynamics Mm-hmm. are something you can think about as you decide how you want to relate to music and your audience. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure that you learned a lot of that just in being in such close proximity to people. If they're walking by you on a sidewalk, <laughs> they have the right to just keep their eyes straight ahead and keep moving. But your job is to break that wall and invite them to have a moment with you. And that's what it's about. Is I mean, it sounds like the whole time you were making music it was about inviting people to stop mm-hmm. from whatever they they had set their life up to be and just take a little moment to enjoy it themselves yeah totally when i think back on it when i was really busking a lot is it was a um big challenge that i i didn't really understand the hugeness of the challenge of making people stop <laughs> and you know when they're on their way home or they're on their way to work or whatever and uh to stop and listen to a little skinny bald kid playing a pop song is not what you're planning to do. But <laughs> I, I think it it ma- it forced me to make the songs the star, you know? I never felt like this... Well, I'm just a... Uh, I don't know. I'm just like sort of a, a tool to get the song into the air. And the song is the star. The images in the song, the characters in the song... The atmosphere of the song is really what people care about, and I'm just a, I'm just a bullhorn with I'm just a fleshy bullhorn. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I guess on that level, I could sort of step out of it a little bit because I wasn't on the streets trying to promote myself at all. I had no 
ambition. I only wanted to share these funny songs that I wrote and get them out into the air and turn them into some cash so I could buy a beer and some Indian food at the end of the night. (laughs) (laughs) So um, I like thinking of it that way. And And that's probably what allowed me to do it as much as I did in such challenging circumstances as I did. Uh Um, Where were you at? What city? Well, I did it mostly in Boston, some in New York, but mostly Boston in the subways and Harvard Square and Central Square. I started out playing on the outbound Orange Line, which is a pretty rough scene, you know, lots of hardened characters, but that's where somebody told me to go play when I first moved to town. And so I did. And I just kept playing there, even though it was just full of thugs and uh, <laughs> and I would stand down there playing uh, run DMC covers you know with my weird little Sears guitar plugged into a tiny amplifier and I, I made money I think because I you know people thought that I was gonna be murdered any second they're probably like <laughs> you know giving me cash for the funeral <laughs> but Again, I was just like, I love this little song. All right. Not like, I'm going to be huge. But I just (laughs) needed to get that little song out. And so I didn't care. I didn't even know where I was. (laughs) (laughs) And so when you went home at the end of the day, what was the feeling? Did you feel you had your release? Is that what you needed? Or did you feel, I mean, was it hard at times? Um, Not really. No, it wasn't hard. I... I didn't do it eight hours, you know, I didn't wear my body out doing it. So I would do it for two or three hours, you know, and maybe a few times a week. I wasn't like a, you know, carpal tunnel, wintertime, play through the pain kind of busker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had friends who had uh, really destroyed themselves playing a lot. Like Mary Lou Lord was a busker in Boston, a good friend of mine that I ended up being in a band with and stuff like that. But she really, really crushed her hands doing it and i was like "Ooh, i'm not doing that so i kind of saw my friends pushing the limits and i was like i'll stop short of that mm-hmm. so i would just go home yeah feeling energized and uh have my 40 ouncer mickey's big mouth and my uh chinese food and be like <laughs> i did it i made dinner <laughs> that's exactly it. <laughs> 50 dollars whoa i made it Yeah, but I really did feel like I made it. Like, oh my gosh, I just made money making music. I am totally successful. Yeah. It was a really good feeling. Yeah. And in some ways, I've gone back to that now. I'm, like I say, with the performances, I set it up like that. I'm totally DIY. I run my own record label. I put out my own albums. I record them myself. It's really the Casper Baby Pants thing is exactly the same as where I was in 1988, 89. But the identity or the purpose of the music is different. It's definitely got a purpose now, which is really satisfying, which is, you know, entertaining the entire family and keeping the parents and the kids in the same room with the same song, having a shared experience rather than the parents retreating to another part of the house because they can't stand the music. Mm-hmm. So I have this really great purpose. Again, it's not about me. It's about the songs and about the purpose. So I don't appear in any of my videos because I don't want it to be about me presenting myself as the star. I just want the songs to shine. So, yeah, that's my style. Nice. So how did it feel once you actually got pulled into the commercial world and you're doing these bigger shows? Did you go off stage and have that same feeling of success for your Mickeys and your your dinner? Yeah. Yeah. You said you felt like you'd made it. So by the time you made it, did you feel like you'd made it too? 
<laughs> Actually, uh, yeah, the initial sensation was this really huge rush of excitement, you know, signing a major label deal, all that momentum and that um, that unstoppable cyclone of opportunities and meeting people and touring and playing on TV and award shows and stuff it was just, you know, it was really dreamy in a way, but dreamy, you know, like not of this world. I had a distinct sensation that it was not home, is not sustainable, not my natural habitat. My analogy I always used to say or, or felt back then and said subsequently was that I felt like I was at a super fancy party and I was underdressed and I had no invitation and any second the maitre d' was going to be tapping on my shoulder saying, sir, there's been a horrible mistake. And meanwhile, <laughs> until he does, I'm going to put as much shellfish and shrimp in my mouth as I can. <laughs> <laughs> so it always felt like that. I actually really wanted to break up the band in the middle of the success of the first record and pull a Sex Pistols and just completely disintegrate when we were perfect. But, uh, you know... It's just a little too enticing, and the uh, the the band become you know there were three of us, but the band, the idea of the band became like a fourth member, and that fourth member became very hungry for mm. attention and energy, and we just sort of served the beast for a while, and then it just yeah, then we just kind of went off the rails as far as I lost track of the point of the music, I lost track of how to write songs and the little inner voices in my head asking if it was a hit or not or how to craft a hit got out of control and got really loud and I couldn't just sit down and play an instrument and enjoy it I always felt like I had to be working towards something and it got kind of nightmarish actually um, because I had been happy before I didn't really I mean yeah. don't get me wrong the monetary payoff was killer not worrying about playing in the subway for my Mickey's Big Mouth and my Indian food but in some ways, the simplicity of that is honorable, and um, I just knew that I didn't want to make a home there in famous land. It was not a place to make a home. It was a good, good place to pass through and be like, hey, everybody, but um, it's totally not home. So I feel like now I have found my home. I found my voice. I do these songs that are just innocent and simple and families love them and it's really like helping people with their stressful time when they're not sleeping when they're a new parent and their kids are little and i get so many like teary-eyed parents just saying you know you've saved this car trip you've saved our kids childhood <laughs> i get people with autistic kids saying that you've actually opened up their vocabulary and yeah. kind of um unhinge their minds in a way that's been constructive and so yeah, it feels so much better than the flash and glitz of uh, the grown-up famous world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really nice. So, yeah, occasionally, uh, you know, the presidents will play a little show, and, and I'll get a little hit of that feeling, but it's just more in service to the fans and less in service to our careers. You know, we don't really have a career anymore, but we do have the music, so that's cool. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have the memory, too. I mean, yeah, I, I think the only thing worse than going through the experience is not having that memory to kind of judge how you feel about where you're at now. Yeah, true. I wouldn't have wanted it to go any other way. It, I mean, that was so great to get to walk around in those places where it's all shiny and happy and famous and successful. And it's really nice to get that experience. And, and you know, and that's validation. It, you know, it's, um, <clears throat> 
it's a big it was a big confidence booster for sure you know to feel like my songs and the way i see the world is valuable to people mm-hmm. was really nice yeah yeah so i wouldn't trade it for anything but i'm super glad it's over <laughs> yeah <laughs> i can see that uh, just yeah, I, I mean i, I could have done that ooh for a lot longer ooh. but uh, <laughs> you could have done it all summer long which is what yeah. you're planning to do <laughs> yeah i could go on yeah it is kind of this trapping of being a performer nowadays well i mean anytime that that becomes this carrot that you think you want until you get too much of a taste of it there's something to be said for being happy where you're at and understanding how valuable you are exactly in your context yeah the only way to get to your dream future is through the present Mm. the only thing that's real is the exact now the past is not real. The future is not real. As far as it impacts your happiness, you know, your your ego loves the past and the future. That illusion of time is like candy for your ego. And people get all worked up and twisted out of shape by that inner voice, hoping for the future and, you know, pining over the past or regretting the past or fearing the future. And um, I always tell people, like, the doorway to your happiness is insanely tiny, and it's in the exact moment of right now. And saying what you mean, asking for what you want. If you say what you mean and ask for what you want, that door will open and you can slide right through. But you can't do it in the future and you can't do it in the past. You can only do it right now. And so being content right now is, that's the compass, you know. Just like feel what you're feeling. Uh, Am I happy? No, why not? Well, I need to change this and that and this. And then you do it, and then, okay, now, check again. Am I happy? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. Just keep on checking. You have to check over and over and over and over and over. And um, listen to your little characters that are telling you what's up in your mind, and then fix things. So, But, yeah, the, carrot, the popular sort of mythology of that the carrot on the string is so rooted in your ego's um, hunger for hope for the future and the danger is if you place your self-worth or your self-image in the future, then you'll never get there Yeah. because you've closed the yeah. door. You've closed that teeny tiny door of being aware of who you are right now, which is the only way you can get there. So. Right. Well, and you've, you've just naturally told yourself that what you are right now isn't good enough. Yes. Yeah. By omission, by, yeah, right. By putting yourself in the future, you've negated your current self. Mm. Yeah. It's true. So that's a good outcome of having gone that route. So, yeah. So now, I mean, do you think, uh, sorry, a few different thoughts in my brain. Yeah, um, me too. Always. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we just had South by Southwest uh, finish up this last weekend. It was the music portion. And uh, one of the best pictures that I saw go around was... Um, Lyle Lovett was standing in front of the Willie Nelson statue, and he had his guitar out, and he was busking. And uh, it made me really happy, because I understood that for him, he just wanted to get out there and make some music with people. It's this wonderful festival, everybody's coming together to just have this experience, and, and he just went and stood in front of Willie, and he just played some songs. And I thought, that is 
what it's about. That's the essence of it. He didn't go out there because he wanted people to snap pictures. He didn't go out there because he wanted to make a statement about how down to earth he is or any of those things. It was just yeah. about that experience. Awesome. With that those sounds people. good. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the question is, do you think once you go on this kind of hiatus of all the stuff in your life, and you come back to where you just pick up the guitar when you want to. Do you think that'll be a byproduct of this break? You mean of the break, like this summer, like taking the summer off? Yeah. No, I think I'll probably pick up where I left off. I mean, you know, I have lots of gigs booked for the fall. <laughs> and I have a record coming out and all this stuff. So I think my goal with the summer thing is... What is my goal? My goal is to really um, immerse myself in the moment in just being and not doing and um, sort of to, uh, I don't know, re like I said, reconnect with who I was when I was 23. A lot of really good musical notions and melodies and ideas come out of doing nothing, you know, like just having a pointless day where I'm hanging out with my friends and somebody says something funny and it turns into a song and and you wouldn't get there without that space, without the void. So really it's just to kind of make a space so that m more songs can come up, hopefully. <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, clearing away the trap door so that more songs can come up from the basement or something like that. Is that kind of what you're asking, or, or what? I, I no, I just wondered if once there's not the expectations of, I'll have this project done on this day, and this is my oh. goal for the afternoon. I wondered if you would just yeah. that well of want to make music would you know send you out there and you know where you're right in front of people and just having fun again. On the oh street. yeah, maybe. Well, actually, you know, I feel like I have that now. The Casper Baby Pants shows are just like busking for me. It feels exactly like busking. So I have that. I have the sensation of just standing up in front of people and playing every time I do a Casper Baby Pants show. Because I don't have a set list. I just have a book of songs. I don't know what's going to happen. I've crafted it purposely, and I play solo, so I don't have to rehearse with a band and be uh, have a plan or anything. So I get the sensation of being completely in the moment. And, you know, like I said, I have an album coming out in the fall, and I have shows booked already, quite a few shows. So I'll continue to have the structured, you know, goal-based. You can be goal-based and structured and be free of time. <laughs> because being free of time means being free of, of um, making that part of who you are and your sense of your limitations. But that doesn't mean you can't open up the computer and schedule shows, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it, that's, a, that's a different uh, brain function than getting your personality wrapped up in your hopes and fears and regrets and nostalgia. Yeah. <laughs> that's just called Pe being productive and responsible. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. I mean, I am running a record label here, so I have to, like, you know, pay my mechanical royalties to the Beatles and uh, yeah. do accounting and do my taxes and schedule releases and manage inventory and la, 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 la. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but all that stuff is not who I am. It's just, uh, yeah. So my, I don't know, my goal for that time is just, uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen. Mm. It's like Katie, my wife and I get up every morning and we say, what's going to happen to us today? And uh, we don't know. So That's I'm just going to say, what's going to happen? pretty exciting though, isn't it? Oh, totally. Yeah, it's great. I'm going to, 
be on a comedy show tomorrow night doing a skit, and I've never done that before. So I'm saying <laughs> yes to all kinds of things I've never done right now, which is super fun. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I might suck, but <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what happens. It's not my show, so. <laughs> yeah, great. Yeah. So for me, every once in a while, I decide that I want to go out on the street which I don't do a ton of just like street street performing anymore, maybe like twice a year. But whenever I go out, I don't want it to be the thing that I know I'm good at. I don't want it to be the thing that's precious to me. But I'll go out and do a type of busking that I've never done before. Wow. So maybe I'll bring my ukulele and play people for, what was it, Valentine's Day. I went on the street and I split all my songs into happy for Valentine's Day songs and pissed off that it's Valentine's Day songs. And so then I would engage with people and ask them where they were at on the scale of Valentine's Day. Wow, good idea. And then I would play them a song that I thought would hone in on where they were at. Or sometimes I'll go out and try to do statue or something like that. But, you know, I've been trying to find ways to just love the art form. Wow, cool. The act of being out there, being that person who's bringing art out onto the street and not in the way where I'm in my own way with my ego saying, I didn't get enough for this show. It really should have been paid out at this much and it wasn't, or that was crap, or I have expectations of the people. Like Mm -hmm. just trying to enjoy it for what it is. Yeah. 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 That's a great idea. Yeah. I like the idea of being uh, sort of off kilter and uh, out of your element. It's an interesting idea. I might try that, too. Maybe I'll go out there with a little Casio keyboard and just play little grooves for a while. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <That'd be good. laughs> yeah. Yeah, good idea. It, and it really, really makes you present in that, I mean, there's no way that you're going to engage with people without being present. You can't get them to be present with you. And that's the gift that you're giving. Yeah, and that dovetails into what I'm talking about, like being in the moment. Yeah. You know, when you're being entertained, one of the reasons probably entertainment is so intoxicating for people is that they get a break from their inner voice, you know, (laughs) their ego gets stilled and they get to just be where they are. And that's a glimpse of enlightenment or whatever you want to call it. But uh, that is one of the great gifts of performing is giving people that break. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I really love street as a form, because the person didn't know that they were ready for that at that moment. They didn't buy a ticket and say, I'm ready to go see a show. And then they have these expectations of what that will be. Yeah. You, yeah, yeah. You've literally, I mean, you're the one when you wake up in the morning and say, you don't know what's going to happen today. <laughs> yeah. You're the unexpected thing that happens in their day. Yeah. Yeah. True. Good and you're point. the thing that stops and wakes them up for a second. If you do have that opportunity to have a real experience with them. Yeah. Yeah. Well put, Lindsay. <laughs> Thanks. Now I'm feeling like I should probably should go out there, and it's been a while. It's been a while. Yeah, it's yeah. While. Come on, put your money where your mouth is. Yeah, yeah. It, but uh, So are you the Lindsay Lindbergh that crushes an apple with your arms? <laughs> yeah. How did you know that? Because I just was, like, sitting here listening. You know, we are talking, and I'd wanted to see what you look like you have a website or something and i just kind of typed it in and i'm getting this popeye (laughs) girl who crushes apples with her arms and that's you huh yeah that's me nice thanks that is amazing yeah 
How do you <laughs> how do you do that? I uh, I got really strong. Yeah, I'm kind of a weirdo, I suppose. That's uh, awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's been a really fun ride. I mean, in, in the same way as you just don't know what's going to happen in the morning, I think it's exciting to remember that you don't know what's going to happen if you say yes to all the weird possibilities that life offers you. Yeah, absolutely. Like there was one time I remember, I, I don't know, I was just looking through the internet and seeing like what stuff was tied to me. And there was a gal who had written a blog and she saw my show. She didn't come up and talk to me afterwards, but she was really inspired. And she said that she had read a book called What Color Is Your Parachute? And the parachute is basically saying you can change your whole life if you decide you want to go be a singer-songwriter, go do it. If you decide you want to be an art teacher in a grade school, go do that. And <laughs> she said, but I had no idea that my parachute could be leopard print. <laughs> hmm. Leopard print? Yeah, and she said, if I would have known that being a strong woman on the street was a possibility, well, I would have picked that. And <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. And it's really funny to me because... I don't think it was a possibility. I just decided why not. Well, you know, if there's nobody that I need permission from to go out yeah. there and work, then there's nobody that I need permission from to say what I can and can't be. It just turned out to be what people found something beautiful in. Like, I had no idea it was interesting until people were coming up and telling me thank you because, you know, this dad said that his daughter saw my show and said she wanted to grow up and be just like me. And he was really ah. happy because it was a strong female character and he was grateful for that. Yeah, yeah, sure. That's that's fantastic. Yeah. yeah so, it, But I do feel like it's that, that whatever I learned on the street was the same thing that taught me that I didn't have to wait for permission and I didn't have, like I, I could have a leopard color parachute as well, I think. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I hear you. And you know what What occurred to me while you were telling me that is that part of it is like uh, commoditizing or commercialization of music, you know, and turning it into a commodity. Mm. When you're out on the street, yeah, you're playing for money and everything, but it's, you know, not required of the audience to give you money. And their expectations are lower and there's more of a freedom there because, like you said earlier, you know, you're not fulfilling a expectation. You're free to be random. Versus when people pay money and they go in and they sit down and they are expecting to be entertained, then you have to kind of edit and codify and focus your show a certain way. But like you said, you can go out on Valentine's Day with a ukulele and just try things and have that freedom. And then you might discover things. Oh, I'm a Valentine ukulele player. Wait a minute. You know? <laughs> So that's the cool thing about it is it, it gives you a break from music as commodity. And, you know, in the, a lot of the music I base the Casper Baby Pants thing on is old music, like American folk, um, slave songs, work songs, prison chants, stuff that was made to save someone's soul hmm. during a terrible time. And music passed from person to person back then in a really free way. You know, you could hear a song, you could learn it, add your own verse, play it. Somebody else hears it, adds their own verse, subtracts one of your verses. And the song is a living thing that just, like, expands and contracts and passes from person to person. But once you start affixing it to ownership and copyright and money, then all that flexing of creativity stops, you know, or has to be 
paid for, whatever. Oh, yeah. But that's one of the fun things I love about going back and listening to all this public domain music and then incorporating it into my music because it's there and it's free to use. And I love moving the ball with those songs because a lot of people that play those songs are more preservationist. And I'm definitely more like I want to keep the song breathing, you know, keep it moving forward and and, uh, expanding and contracting. So, uh, yeah, all that stuff, all that freedom, making music without money being the goal. That's what you should do, boys and girls. (laughs) (laughs) Start there, boys and girls. (laughs) Yeah, and find your voice and don't let somebody tell you what you have to be. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Even including yourself. Cool, cool, cool. All right. Well, do you think you have what you need there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it does it. So thanks so much for your time. It's been really fun, really fun just uh, chatting with you. And Yeah, I, you too. It's been great. And, uh, you know, if I need any apples crushed, I know where to go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Well, thanks again, and um, take care, and really hope everything goes, goes good and you really enjoy your summer. Thank you. Stories from the Pitch is produced by the Busker Hall of Fame and is made possible through the efforts of a dedicated team who share a passion for the recording, editing, and presenting of these interviews. This episode is proudly sponsored by Dolphin Creative, a company dedicated to supporting street theater and all of the incredible characters from this world. Wherever you perform, Dolphin Creative salutes you. For more information, please visit dolphincreative.org and huge thanks to Stuart and his team for sponsoring this episode and five more to come. If you'd like to support what we're doing, please do consider swinging by the Busker Hall of Fame website and throwing a little love into our online hat by clicking on the donate button. Your contributions really do allow us to grow this resource and generate more content, so thanks in advance for supporting this project. Music for this podcast came from 357 Lover. Links to both songs are available in the notes section of this episode on the Busker Hall of Fame website. Speaking of which, do make an effort to check out the episode notes, which includes some great additional content, including a shot of the mic setup that Lindsay describes at the beginning of the episode, and some great images from Chris Ballou's history. You can subscribe to this podcast in iTunes. Simply go to the podcast library, type in Stories from the Pitch, and download away. And while you're there, please do consider leaving us a review and giving us a five-star rating. It'll take just a minute or two, and it means the world to our production team. Got a story to tell, something you think we can improve, a performer you'd like us to interview, or perhaps you're interested in becoming a sponsor of an upcoming episode? If so, drop me a line at cbg at buskerhalloffame.com. Haven't gotten enough Buskerhoff content yet? Well, then check out our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash buskerhalloffame. Follow us on Twitter, Yappy, SoundCloud, and YouTube, or sign up for our newsletter. Links to all of these can be found on the Busker Hall of Fame website on the right-hand side of the page. And to close, we just wanted to leave you with an actual Chris Ballou story from the pitch. I do remember expanding my uh, personnel on the street. And I got this drummer, and then we got a bass player, and then we got a sax player, and we had a four-piece. And one day we set up that four-piece like five times in different places, and every time we would get everything set up and go like all right here we go one two three four bam and a cop would show up and be like nope nope you can't play here you can't play here (laughs) and we'd be like ah darn it and we'd pack everything up and we'd go to some other subway stop somewhere and be like i'll get everything set up and they're like one two three four bam no you can't play here it's just like the cops would just appear out of nowhere (laughs) and we went five times and we just never did play that day and that's when i also kind of realized hmm, i think solo is easier on behalf of myself 
Executive Director Lindsay Lindbergh, who conducted this interview, Brian Nunes of World Tree Films, who connected us with Chris, Jennifer Raymond from the Awesome Foundation, who connected us with Brian, and all-around great guy Richard Renner, who connected us with Jennifer, not to mention Associate Producer Magic Brian for his ongoing support, and the rest of the staff of the Busker Hall of Fame. We hope this finds you well. And as you perform for audiences around the world, please remember to use your superpowers for good. I'm David Aiken, the Checkerboard Guy. Thanks for listening. I'm super glad it's over.